This morning, we are looking at our third lesson in church history. I mean, that sounds really loud. You got it? All right. Um, there is a, a ton of material to look at this morning. So um, we're looking at some major events that happened uh, 1,700 years ago, and we still feel the influence of those things even today, 1,700 years later. So a lot of stuff to cover, a lot of major stuff that happened. So I hope you got a pen, hope you're ready to write. Smoke said he's got a perfect memory. We're going to test that. we got a quiz after we're done, maybe. So just buckle up. We're going to plow through it this morning. Um, I'm going to start with a prayer by a guy named Clement of Rome. He was an early, early leader in the church, uh, maybe uh, 30, 40 years after Paul the Apostle uh, was martyred in 64 AD. So this guy lived late, or he was bishop uh, in Rome. Uh, a pastor in Rome in the late 90s uh, AD, so first century. So he goes way back. But he, there's a prayer of his that I'm going to pray uh, to start us off this morning. So if you'd pray with me. Grant unto us, Lord, that we may set our hope on your name and open the eyes of our hearts that we may know you. We beseech you, Lord and Master, to be our help and support. Save those among us who are in tribulation. Have mercy on the lowly. Lift up the fallen. Show yourself to those in need. Heal the sick. Turn again the wanderers of your people. Feed the hungry. Ransom our prisoners. Raise up the weak. Comfort the faint-hearted. Let all nations know that you are God alone and that Jesus Christ is your Son and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. We praise you who are able to do these things and better things than these. Through Jesus Christ, the high priest and guardian of our souls, through whom be glory and majesty to you, both now and throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So not a bad way to start. 1,700-year-old prayer. Uh, get started with that this morning. Um, two, you look on your, uh, your instruction, your, your, uh, your study guide, uh, two main headings that kind of frames the material that we're looking at this morning. Uh, the relationship between the church and the state, or the church and the government at that time, and then orthodoxy, which is right belief, versus heresy, which is a wrong belief, an error. Um, the church and state. Church undergoes uh, a major, major shift in its relationship to the government during this time. It goes from being a persecuted church uh, to a religion that is favored in the Roman Empire. Um, most developments, as we look through church history, as we walk through, a lot of developments take place gradually. They take time to come about. This was a major shift that happened almost overnight to go from a change of being a persecuted group uh, to being a religion that was favored, the favored religion of the emperor and the Roman Empire, to uh, a few years down the road, it would be the official uh, state religion of the Roman Empire. It would be illegal to not be a Christian. So a complete shift uh, in the relationship between the church um, and the state. And so one of the things is that the questions we've got to look at is how will it respond to that kind of a, of a change? Okay, and then in orthodoxy and heresy, you know, the first three centuries, the church withstood pressure and persecution from without. Now the challenges shift to how's it going to respond to false doctrine? How's it going to respond to heresy? How's it going to respond to challenges from within? Okay, so the the, the challenges have shifted somewhat from coming without to struggling with problems within itself. Okay, so how the question is how will it, uh, as Jude says, contend for the faith? that was handed down once for all for the saints. 
Okay, so church and state, orthodoxy and heresy. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So we ended up last week, um, kind of towards the end of the 3rd century, which means we're about the year 300 A.D. Um, there's an emperor on the throne named Diocletian. You don't really have to remember his name. All you need to remember is that under him, it was, it was the last and most severe persecution of the church. There had been periods, as we looked at, of persecution of those, of, over those first two or 300 years. Well, this is the last one. It was also the most severe. I mean, he made it his intent uh, to wipe out uh, the Christian church. Uh, he tried to destroy the scriptures. He was burning down church buildings. He rounded up uh, church bishops and Christians, tortured them, executed them. It was his desire to wipe it out. Um, he uh, abdicated his throne. One of his successors was a guy named Galerius. You don't have to remember his name either. He continued uh, that persecution as well um, until he got towards the end of his reign. Um, and, and finally, they come to a point of just realizing this is doing no good. All we're doing is, is we're creating more Christians. I mean, people were volunteering for martyrdom. Uh, people were showing up, saying, I'll, I'll give my life today. Uh, in fact, it was happening so often that there was a bishop, I think in Carthage, who said, no more. You know, if you're, just, if you're needlessly rushing into martyrdom, we're not even going to recognize you anymore as a martyr. Um, so even, and even the, uh, uh, the non-Christians, the, the pagans, Roman citizens are looking at this saying, this isn't doing anything. It's just a bunch of bloodshed. It's not accomplishing anything. Uh, there was a church father, Tertullian, that said that the blood of the martyrs is seed. In other words, every time you kill one of these Christians, there are more that come to faith. People would see their witness, and they would come to faith, and the church was growing. So it wasn't doing any good. So Galerius, his last official act uh, as an emperor was to issue an edict or a decree of toleration, and that meant that you weren't going you, you to persecute. The state was not going to persecute Christians any longer. Okay? So they went from being illegal to now at least being legal. And they weren't going to be persecuted. All right, so he dies, and his son-in-law is a guy named Maxentius, and he is now emperor in Rome. Um, but at the same time, this was, and there was a bunch of turmoil going over. Who's going to be, who's going to be the, uh, the emperor? Who's, who's going to be the rightful ruler? There's, at the same time that he takes the throne, there's another guy in the western part of the Roman Empire whose name is Constantine. And this is the guy that you want to remember, his name. Uh, he was a Roman general. He thought that he had a more rightful claim to the throne, so he takes his troops, and he's marching on the city to take his, uh, his rightful place as the emperor. All right, so he gets, he gets outside of Rome. He's, he's marched a long way. He's fought battles on the way. He's lost troops. He's outnumbered two to one. And so he orders all of his troops, uh, his generals, his commanders, all of his troops to pray, to pray to all the gods. You know, he was a worshiper of a, of a god called the Unconquered Sun, S-U-N. He worshiped the sun. He would march out in his name. But he knows that he's vastly outnumbered, so he's calling on all the gods. All right? Evidently, his mother was a Christian, and so he prays to the Christian God as well. And then what happens next? The people are still uh, debating on exactly what happened with Constantine and what he saw. He claims, it was either a little bit of time before the battle or the night before the battle, he claims that he sees a vision in the sky with the words, in this sign you will conquer. And I, I was trying to get some PowerPoint stuff put together here today so you could see uh, uh, an example of what we're talking about. But he sees these words, and he sees a sign uh, in the sky in the form of the two, two Greek letters, the first two letters of the word Christos in Greek. Uh, it's a chi, or key, however you pronounce that, a chi and a row. We would, to us, it's like an X and a P is what that looks like. But those, he took that as a sign of Christ. And so he took that sign, he put it on all of his, his uh, banners, 
put it on all of his shields of his whole army, and he marches uh, to, to, uh, to meet Maxentius. And they meet at this place called the Milvian Bridge. It's this little bridge over the Tiber River right outside of Rome. Uh, Maxentius has taken all of his troops, marched them across this bridge. He's got the river at his back. He's effectively cut off uh, any escape he has. And Constantine comes in under this sign, and he wipes them out. Uh, he defeats Maxentius. His troops are routed. They're in a panic. They're trying to get back across this one bridge. Uh, he gets thrown into the river. He drowns. Constantine marches into Rome victorious, uh, and he credits uh, his success in this battle to this Christian god, Christos, to Christ. That's who he is crediting with his success for this victory. Okay. Now, there's, there's some debate, too, as to whether or not he became a Christian then, or if he became a Christian later in life, or if he, even if he became a Christian at all. I think there's some decent evidence either way. Uh, you know, will you see this guy in heaven? I have no idea. Maybe, maybe not. But some of the things that he did after uh, he defeated Maxentius and credits Jesus uh, with his victory, he had his children brought up as Christians. Uh, he gave clergy, he gave the, 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 the pastors of his day a tax exemption. All right, how do you like that? It's not a bad perk. You can thank Constantine. Uh, still to this day, you know, in, in areas that have been that have been influenced by Christianity, uh, you see this, where pastors uh, have some sort of a tax-exempt status, kind of a nice perk. So he did that for the clergy. Um, he made something that we still make use of today. He made Sunday a public holiday. You know, up until that time, it was just seven days. You just work, 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 work every day. All right. Well, then, you know, so on Sundays, which was the day that Christians had begun to gather for their weekly uh, worship, you know, they would gather oftentimes before dawn because you had people that had to go and work for the rest of the day. Well, he made Sunday a holiday. And so that's, the, you know, we still do that today. We this is set aside as a day off uh, for most of us, some of us, but we still come together and we worship uh, Christ on that day. So you've got that. Uh, he took money and property that had been confiscated. He restored that to the Christians. Uh, he supported the building of churches. He gave a ton of money uh, for the building of new churches. He abolished cruci crucifixions. If you had been a criminal condemned to, to be executed by crucifixion, he did away with all that. He abolished uh, gladiators, uh, the gladiatorial battles in the Colosseum. He abolished those. This sport of going, this form of entertainment of going to the scene, of going to the Colosseum and watching uh, people put each other to death or being fed to the beast, he did away with it. He abolished it. So some good stuff. On the other hand, uh, he still kept this title. It's called Pontifex Maximus, which basically means that he's the high priest of the state religious cult, which included idol worship. It included the worship of the emperor. Um, he kept uh, the images of pagan deities on the, uh, the money, the coins that was uh, being used at the time. Um, he conspired. He murdered. Uh, he had his wife uh, put to death, I think for adultery is what it was. He had his son put to death. Um, but in his private life as well, he also tried to institute a, a kind of a Christian family life. So you've got this mixed kind of bag uh, of evidence. But one thing uh, was certain is that after this happened, Christianity went from a status of not just being tolerated, it was the favored religion. Now, uh, being a Christian was kind of somewhat fashionable. There was a new respect uh, for being a Christian. So, don't know if you'll see him in heaven or not. One, one other thing to note, at the end of his life, he received a Christian baptism, and he would no longer wear his royal robes. He would only appear in his white uh, baptismal clothing. So, maybe as a sign of humility, a sign of his new life in Christ. So, will you see him? 
Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, some people would claim he is one of the ten most important people who have ever lived because of the changes that took place under him that really changed the course of history. All right. So you got this place where Christians are now. This is early 300s. This is 312, 313 A.D. Uh, Christians find they're no longer persecuted. They can preach. They can evangelize. They can worship openly and freely uh, without fear of being persecuted. Um, there's a new respect for being a Christian. And, and then you get a few years down the road in 380 A.D., there's another emperor named Theodosius, and he's the guy who now makes the Christian religion the state religion of the empire. It's now illegal to not be a Christian. Okay? That's incredible. I mean, we don't even have that. You know, we call ourselves at times a Christian nation. We don't even have that here. So you go in less than 100 years from Christians being trying to be wiped out to now it's illegal to not be a believer. That is absolutely incredible. All right, so if you are living... Well, let me back up real quick. Show of hands. How many of you think that's a good thing? Anybody? We've got a few hands in here. I mean, you can worship freely. No longer any persecution. There's a law that makes it illegal uh, to be a Christian. If we were living at the time, most of us would have probably thought, man, this is like heaven on earth. And in fact, that was uh, a popular belief. I mean, this is com- the picture has completely changed to the extent that people would look at the Roman Empire at that time as being God's plan uh, for his kingdom on earth. That the Roman Empire was almost this new Israel. It was God's new Israel. Okay, And most of us probably would have thought the same thing. Now, Some of that, though, people would argue, may have been one of the worst things that ever happened to Christianity. Because you can take people, some of this stuff caught with a, caught, came with a price. You can take people, you can baptize them at the sword point, that doesn't mean their heart will follow. Okay, So a lot of this uh, came with a price. Um, you have a lot of people now coming into the church who aren't really believers. They're forced to be believers in name only, but their heart has not been converted. So now you've got a lot of non-Christian influence, a lot of pagan influence that's now coming uh, into the church. You see a growing political and material advantage. If you're politically ambitious, now you can use the church to grow in your political ambitions, your material ambitions. Okay, um, You start to see where it's too easy to confuse the church and the state. The state becomes a means for the church to enforce its belief. Because now the Roman emperor is the head of the church, in effect. Okay? The church becomes a means to power within the state. People can use the church to, to gather power. And the state becomes a means for the church to carry out its beliefs. Okay? It can force you at the point of the sword to be a Christian. All right? So, and also, the state now has a say in the affairs of the church, which is great if Christ himself is ruling on the throne. Not so great if it's just a mere man who's the head over the entire church. And this will have some serious ramifications uh, as we walk through uh, our study of church history. Um, church also begins to grow in wealth and in power uh, and in influence. And I couldn't find it, but I know I've heard this, this little anecdote where about this time, the church is accumulating a lot of wealth, and you've got these two bishops that are, are, are standing in a, in a church building somewhere, and again, I can't remember the exact story or where they are, but it, it's, it's, you're looking at all this wealth, this, this massive amount uh, of stuff, and one bishop 
who I think is the younger one, looks at all this and he turns to the older bishop and he says, well, you know, no longer as the blessed Peter do we have to say silver and gold have we none. And the older bishop looks at him and says, yes, that's true. And no longer as the blessed Peter can we say, take up your mat and rise, walk in the name of Christ. As their power and their wealth began to grow, they were beginning to lose the fervency and the purity of their lives. One of the, I'm not going to say that persecution is necessarily in and of itself a good thing, but one of the things that it did for those first three centuries is it purified the body. There wasn't a whole lot of guessing of who was in and who was out. Okay, These were convinced believers. They knew that their lives were at stake. And now that has changed and, and continues to change as we walk through history. Um, so accumulating great power, great influence, great wealth, but maybe losing some of the holiness, some of the purity, some of the spiritual power that it had for those first two or three centuries. Even with all that, though, people would still look at it and say, this is God's plan. This is heaven on earth. Until you get about 100 years down the road, 400 A.D., something had happened that hadn't happened in 800 years, uh, and Rome was defeated, the city of Rome. Uh, there was a barbarian tribe named the Visigoths. They came in in 410. They defeated uh, the Romans, uh, defeated Rome. Um, and so now, people, again, kind of a shocking deal, almost overnight, people's paradigm. Now, wait a second, I thought this was God's plan, you know, for his kingdom on earth. I thought this was God's new Israel. I mean, how, if this is the kingdom of God on earth, how can something like this happen where the kingdom is defeated? And that brings us to a guy, you can look at on your study guide, under Augustine, church bishop named Augustine. He wrote a book called The City of God. It's about 900 pages long. It's a classic uh, in Christian literature. Um, and it's, part of its intent was to remind people uh, that the church and the state are not the same. All right? It may have been, I mean, even if you even go back to, uh, uh, to the nation of Israel, under the kings, you had the head of the state and a king, but he was not head over the church, if you wanted to call it that at that time. You still had the high priest. There's still a, a division there. Okay? And he's reminding people the church and the state are not the same. The city, and he, he would contrast the city of man and the, and the city of God. The city of man is a temporal, our temporal home. It's temporary. It's based on love of self, love of the world. It's characterized by worldliness. You contrast that with the city of God. That's our eternal home. It's based on a love of God and a devotion to Him. You can trace the city of man, the history of the city of man. You look at the, at the empires, Babylonian Empire. Uh, the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Then the Greeks defeated the Medes and the Persians. And then Rome, the Roman Empire, was simply the next one in line. Okay, You can trace that. City of God, history of the city of God, outside of Scripture, you can't necessarily trace. You can't, you can't know, if you're living at that time, what God's purpose is for the Roman Empire and how it figures into His plan. You get a few hundred years down the road and history gives you a little bit of insight in looking back. But it's not like the history that we have in the Scriptures. That is what we would call a revealed history. It comes to us with an interpretation. God is, is giving that to us. He's showing us how the pieces fit together. He's showing us His intent. What we live in now is a period uh, of observed history. 
we can look at what's taking place. God is just as sovereign over this time period as He is over the time period that He gives us in the Scriptures. It's just that we don't know exactly what God is doing at each step of the way in unfolding His plan. We can look at events and we can trust the God who is sovereign. All right. So, city of God, city of man, those two, we inhabit both as Christians. You live in a temporal earth, a temporal home, and yet we are citizens of the city of God, citizens of a heavenly country. So you don't confuse the two. God's kingdom uh, is not bound by earthly kingdoms, and you don't get the order backwards. The city of God always comes first in order of importance. We seek first the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's what this book was that Augustine wrote. A um, little more on, on who was Augustine. He was a massive, massive figure in church history. His doctrinal influence, the, the work that he did in working out uh, orthodoxy or right belief, we still are influenced that, by that today. Some of the stuff that he did on sin, some of the stuff that he did on grace, on God's sovereignty. We, this church body, in, all, in some respects, is Augustinian because we are influenced uh, by what he did. He was a bishop of a city called Hippo, which is, was a Roman city in North Africa, not an animal. Uh, he was born to a Christian mother and a pagan father, and yet at, a, at an early age, he renounced the Christianity of his mother. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was fit for women and children. It wasn't intellectual enough for him. Uh, and so he went out to indulge himself in a ton of sexual pleasure. If you made a movie of his life, it would not be K-Love, kind of positive and encouraging uh, and fun for the whole family. It's not what you would call a family-friendly family movie. If you made a, a movie of the life of Augustine. Um, he was a brilliant mind, incredibly brilliant mind. Uh, he went through several different philosophical systems in his search for answers to life, in his search to make sense of the world. So he's brilliant mind, and yet he gives himself over almost to these unbridled, uncontrolled sexual desires. He, had a, he kept a mistress, had a child out of wedlock. Um, so he's, in a lot of ways, he's all over the map. And he winds up in a city called Milan, uh, Italian city of Milan. Uh, and there, in the city, was a bishop in the church named Ambrose, who was another really important figure. I wish we had some time to look at some of his stuff. Uh, we don't have time this morning. Ambrose was one of the best preachers of his day. He was a master of what was called rhetoric or communication. Um, and Augustine, uh, and I, can't, I get the order back, backwards a little bit, at different times he was a teacher of rhetoric uh, in the university. So he, he goes to listen to Ambrose primarily to listen to this guy's technique. He wants to see how does this guy communicate? What can he learn? What can he glean? Well, after a while, he, forget, he forgets about Ambrose's technique, and now he's starting to pay attention to the message, what Ambrose is preaching. He begins to come under, under conviction of sin, incredible conviction of sin. He wrote a book called Confessions, the Confessions of St. Augustine. It's another uh, classic in Christian literature uh, that is not uh, probably as widely read nearly as much as it should be. Um, he outlines, he goes through this story of his conversion. So he came under this incredible uh, conviction of sin. He became convinced that Christianity was true, but he didn't want to give up his sexual pleasure. He would look at Ambrose, he would look, look at his life and say, he looks to me like he is happy, he is fulfilled, he's content, there's purpose, he has a, a, a happiness in God, but he's celibate. 
And I don't want to deal with that part of it. All right? He didn't want to give that part up. All right? So he's, he's going through all this turmoil until finally, uh, one day, and this is another monumental kind of moment in church history, uh, he's, got the, he's got Paul's epistle. You didn't have everything collected in one bound Bible like we do today. You had different books and different scrolls, and he's sitting in a garden, uh, kind of in his backyard, and he's reading Romans. And he puts it down, and he's just anguished over all of this that's going on in his life. And he hears the voice of a child over the wall in the backyard next to him, singing just this little childish song. And the words were, take up and read, take up and read. And so he kind of takes that as a sign. He picks the scroll back up, and the first place that he comes to was in, I think it's Romans 14. And the verse was his words, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And in his words, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. He was converted uh, through, the work of an Am- through the work of Ambrose, the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, and some little girl singing a little kid's song uh, in the backyard next to him. And that is a monumental moment because this guy, God takes this guy and the brilliant mind that he's gifted him with, and now this guy sits under Ambrose. He eventually becomes the bishop there uh, in this church in Hippo uh, in North Africa. Um, he got into some, some fierce uh, and contentious debates in combating heresy in the early church. One of them had to do with what's called the Donatist controversy. We're not going to look at that this morning. Um, but probably his, the most fierce and most famous debate that he got into was with a, a, a British monk named Pelagius. Um, Pelagius had the idea that humans are born basically good. Okay? You're not born with a sinful nature. You're not born as a sinner. You're not born with an inclination to sin. You are born basically good. And you are influenced by other people. And that's how you come in uh, to sinning. Okay, sin, uh, you're, it, can be a, you can, it can be a bad habit, but the, the underlying kind of idea is this. If you're born basically good, if sin is not innate within you, then you can overcome sin by your obedience. And what that does is it effectively eliminates the need for a Savior because you can do it on your own. The law was given to you as a guide, to tell you what to do. Jesus has given to you as an example of what it looks like to walk in obedience to that law, and you can do it for yourself. All right? Pelagianism is alive and well today. The church, uh, Augustine, uh, in his battling this, said no. He argued from two things. First, his own personal experience. He knew that sin for him was more than just a bad habit. All right? It was innate in him, uh, it was part of his nature. It wasn't just a habit, it was vicious, it was destructive, it was enslaving. He would argue from his experience, he would argue from Scripture. He would look at things like Romans 3 that says, no one does good. No one. No one seeks after God in and of themselves. Matthew 5, 19, evil comes out of your heart. It is innate within you. Uh, John 8, 34, you are slaves to this sin. You can't do any, you can't not sin, is what he would argue from the scriptures. Okay, so 
he does battle with him. Uh, the church officially declared uh, Pelagius' teachings as heresy, uh, and it adopted Augustine's teaching on this um, as its official uh, doctrine at the time. But we still do battle with this today. You still see what's called semi-Pelagianism even today, because we still have, even today, this idea that we might be sinners, and yet there's still within us something of good. We can still turn to Christ. And you would see other guys throughout church history make use of that and say, if there's just a little bit of good, then what we need to do is emotionally rig you know, a service, emotionally rig whatever we need to do to bring, break people's will, bring them to the point of responding to that good that is within them so that they will place their faith in Christ. All right? Your testimony, if you are a believer, is primarily one of God saving you. You respond to God because he saved you first. That's what Augustine would teach. He did great work on showing that we are totally depraved, which means, doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. It just means that we are entirely affected by sin. We are unable in and of ourselves to respond to God. It takes a work of God first in our hearts to regenerate us, to bring us to the point of responding in faith. He teaches that faith is a gift of God. He teaches that God is totally sovereign. All right, we are Augustinian in those respects. All right, so see him doing battle with uh, with Pelagius. Um, we still see this again, like we said today, this idea that humans are basically good. Uh, you see this in liberal churches. We don't need Jesus as a savior. We just need Jesus as a guide, because we're we're basically good and we can do it on our own. And Augustine would argue, and we would argue, and I think the scriptures would argue, that that's completely wrong. Okay? Um, before we walk through some of these controversies and, and uh, councils, church councils, any questions so far? We're throwing a lot of stuff out there, a lot of stuff to kind of process and think about, but any questions before we move on? Uh, when did he die? Let's see. I can't remember when he was born. You know, sometime in the 300s, later 300, mid to later 300s, I think, his, his birth. Um, Rome was defeated in 410 or 412 A.D., and then he worked on this city of God, I think, for 16 years, writing that book. Um, so it might have been 430, somewhere around there, when he died. Um, but Augustine, you know, and again, just... One quick note about Augustine. Again, he is a massive, massive figure in church history. He did a lot of work uh, in recovering Paul's teaching on grace in the early church. If you, if you look at the church teachings for those first two or three years, uh, the sermons that we have, the letters that we have, the books that were written, you don't see a ton on grace. You see a lot about good works and a virtuous life. All right? But you don't see a ton of stuff about grace, and that's one of the things that Augustine kind of recovered. Um, and then the church, through the Middle Ages, kind of punts again, and then in the, uh, in the Reformation, you see guys like Martin Luther, who in his commentary on Romans quoted Augustine a hundred times. John Calvin was Augustinian before he was ever a Calvinist. All right? He was influenced heavily by Augustine. So, massive, massive figure. Constantine and Augustine. You need to remember those two names from so far. Okay. Um, controversies and councils. 
we're going to fly through a lot of this as well because we've only got about 15 minutes. Um, the heresy that the church had to deal with in these, in these first few hundred years, a lot of it centered around the nature of God, the nature of Christ. Who is Christ? Who is he? What makes up his nature? And you walk through several different uh, heresies. We're going to fly through these. First one on your list there, um, adoptionism. It was the belief that Jesus was born only as a man and then adopted at his baptism as the Son of God. Okay, So it, it rightly emphasized his humanity, but it denied his deity. He's not fully God. Okay? He may be human, but he's not fully God. All right? A second one, modalism. Uh, it held rightly that there was only one God, but the problem that it had is it says that God, instead of being three persons, distinct persons within the Trinity, that God has three modes, three manifestations, uh, three ways of showing himself to humanity. He has the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit. All right, and the, the deal is that you've got one God and one substance, what the early church, or what this, uh, what this heresy would say. They would say, though, that the Father is the Son, is the Spirit. Okay? Historic Christian teaching on the Trinity would say uh, God is Father. The Father is God, fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. But you have one God. There are not three gods. And again, what we try to do with historic Christian teaching is set a boundary of saying we can't fully explain how you have three and one and you have only one and not three separate gods. It's not polytheistic. We don't understand necessarily how that works, but we're creating boundaries outside of which we know what it's not. Okay? And it was trying to erect a fence or a boundary to protect some of the mystery of what we can't fully work out. Because there are some issues. If, if Jesus is the same as the Father, is the same as the Spirit, if Jesus died, then the Father died. And the Spirit died. I mean, God died on the cross. If you have one God, one essence, just three different ways of showing yourself, then when Christ died on the cross, God died. All right? Well, that's, an, that's a problem. That's an issue. Uh, the next one, Arius versus Alexander and Athanasius. Arius uh, would teach that Jesus was not eternal, that he was a created being, that he was the first of God's creation. He would, he would, he would deny that, that God the Son had existed from all eternity. There, in fact, he had a popular phrase, there was a time uh, when the Son, when Jesus, was not. There was a time when he did not exist. The scripture, we believe, would teach that he has existed eternally. Arius denied that. Um, he said Jesus is divine, but he's not the same substance as the Father. He would teach that he's, he's like God, but he's not the same essence as God. And again, this can kind of be some confusing. You figure, man, are you just splitting hairs? I mean, what does all this matter? I mean, what does it matter if it's not three modes? What does it matter? What does it matter if Jesus isn't fully man or he's not fully God? Um, well, the big deal is that uh, if he is created, 
he's a created being, then he's not truly God. He's not able to infinitely satisfy the demands of God's justice against man's sin. All right? He cannot pay, a, a mere man cannot pay an infinite penalty against an infinitely holy God for our sin if he is not God. All right? Now, if he's not truly and fully man, he cannot rep be man's representative. He can't be our representative as a sacrifice. You've got to be able to satisfy both, both requirements, both sides. He cannot be the representative son of man that he presents himself as in the Scriptures. So he cannot be the God-man mediator to reconcile God and man. Those are the problems. If you, don't, if you have a Jesus who is not fully God and he's not fully man, you don't have a Savior. Is basically what we're saying. That's not the Jesus who can save. You have something that's kind of like a Greek hero. He's a little bit higher than man, but he's not really man. He's a little bit lower than God, but he's not really God. All right? He can't be our mediator. He can't be our representative sacrifice that will fully satisfy God's justice. He's not a Savior. That's the issue. That's not just splitting hairs. That, that determines matters of either your salvation or your damnation. All right? That's important stuff. So, all of this kind of is a huge controversy. It comes to a head, this first council, Nicaea, in 325. Um, the, uh, Constantine is the emperor at the time. And he calls for a council, a church council, to solve the issue, which is kind of a huge thing, because now you've got uh, the head of the state, the head of the government, who's acting as the head of the church, and calling all these bishops together. And it's also what we would call the first ecumenical council. It's the first gathering of bishops from across the church, from across the Roman Empire, and even outside of the Roman Empire. And they come to this place called Nicaea in the year uh, A.D. 325. And there's a great little story that a lot of guys will, will talk about when they get to this point. And they'll, talk, they'll share the story of a, uh, this wealthy American woman who's touring Europe. I think it was early 1900s. Um, she runs across a, a bracelet that she just falls in love with, she's got to have. She wires a cable back to her husband, it's $75,000, can I buy it? Well, he wires back and he says, no, comma, price too high, too expensive. Well, when they cabled it to her, they left out the comma, no price too high. Okay, so she looks at that and thinks, all right, no price too high, let's go get it. You think that one little squiggly mark changed anything about the meaning of what he was trying to, to communicate? It completely changes the meaning. One squiggly. Arius is trying to argue, and you've got some of this in your, I think some of these words in your guide. Arius is trying to argue that Jesus is not what we would say homoousion. He is not the same substance as God. He is homoousion. He is like God. He's similar substance, but not the same. The only difference in those two words is the Greek letter iota. It's a squiggly mark. It's the letter I. Would you be willing to risk your life to stand or fall for a squiggly mark? For, one, for an I. You got a guy named Athanasius who was willing, he said, to stand against the entire world if it took it for an I. Because that safeguarded the very nature 
of what the church believed about Christ. Again, if he's not fully God, if he is not homoousion, then you don't have a Savior. We're not splitting hairs. These things are massively important. All right, so he stood up for Eniota. And that his position won out at Nicaea. The bishops gathered. They discussed this, I think, for a couple of months. Uh, they discussed this issue. They condemned Arius. They condemned his teachings. Athanasius' teaching uh, won out, but you still had a lot of controversy. Arianism didn't just die out completely. There were still uh, massive uh, segments of the church that would hold to this. Um, until you come, again, Second Council, Constantinople in 381, and they added uh, some more wording to this to kind of make this definition a little more airtight. You can read uh, the part of that Athanasian Creed or a Nicene Creed uh, there in your study guide, what they added to it in Constantinople. Um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop because we've got about five minutes. They went through a couple of more church councils, again, trying to refine. That's one of the... One of the good things that heresy has done for the church is it forces the church to come to grips with and to, and to articulate what it believes. So on one hand, you owe a debt of gratitude to heresy because it forced the church to figure out what do we really believe, what do we understand about this, and how do we communicate it clearly. We hold to what is in this creed. This is what we believe about the person of Christ, about the Trinity, about the Holy Spirit. All right, so really, uh, where we end, where we land after all this, is protecting the mystery of God. Instead of depending on the mastery of man, the bishops choose to protect the mystery of God. We can't fully grasp and understand how uh, the divine and human nature of Jesus work together. We can't really fully understand and grasp how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, yet one God, how that works together. But what we do know is that, both, is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man and that he has redeemed our human nature for those who place their faith in him. All right, so in conclusion, we see from these, from these years what we look at today, the church makes an enormous transition from a state of being persecuted uh, to being preferred, in fact, the only legal religion. And as Christianity spreads, it continues to clarify what it does believe and what it does not believe on the basis of faith. And again, these matters of debate aren't small issues. They are issues of the Trinity. They are the issues of the nature of God himself. They are issues of salvation. And we see that despite the bumps on the road, confusion of authority, confusion between church and state, we see that the Lord preserves the church through all these controversies. And ultimately, we see that true authority lies with God alone. Not with our reason, not with man's authority, but God alone and his revelation to us through his scriptures. All right? So, Jared told me I had to end early. I think we've got some, uh, some stuff over here on the side with the uh, baby shower. Any questions real quick uh, before we're dismissed?